We're going to start with a word of prayer here in just a moment. Before we do, we'll give people a couple, couple minutes to get to their chairs. Um, week one, our goal was to define discipleship. And so we gave a fairly simple, hopefully working definition. What is discipleship or what does it mean to disciple someone? It is to do what? To teach them about Christ? Yes. To, to help others follow Christ, to lead them to follow Christ. Um, and, and just a brief summary, if you look on, on your notes there, one and two are summaries from the last two weeks. Disciple making is commanded of the whole church. Disciple making is to be within the context of the church. I think that's really clear that none of us are agents of, we're, no agent baptizes, the church is the agency that does it. And so even that, I think the Catholic Church has gotten it wrong that a priest has to be the baptizer in a Catholic church. Um, the church is the agent, not the priest or the pastor or the person. Uh, disciple making is to lead to obedience. So one of our goals is real practical. Teaching all that he commanded is teaching people to observe all that he commanded, which inquire, it requires both content as well as practice. And then we lead others uh, in, in such a way that we have to lean on the grace of God. We can't do this on our own. And that's why Christ promises his presence. I think it also means there's an authority behind what we're doing. We're commissioned by Christ to speak the word of Christ, and we do so under the authority of Christ. So when we call people to follow Christ, when we call people to obey the words of Christ, don't confuse yourself for the agent um, to whom they're really accountable. And, and here's what I mean by that. You know, when I tell... You know, maybe if, if you tell someone's kids, like, hey, stop playing around. It's a little different as if the parents are like, hey, I can't go. Could you tell them for me? Dad says, stop playing around. And all of a sudden, the transfer of authority, one, you're just a messenger for someone else's authority. Disciple making is, is us saying in the authority of Christ, do this. Disobedience or disregarding that then is what? It's disobedience to the Lord himself, not to the discipler. Um, so then leading others, just some points, um, evaluate what's really going on in their world. I mean, talking to a young man about um, the best way to raise grandchildren would probably be, generally speaking, not super helpful. Um, hopefully he won't be there for a long time. You know, so be aware of who you're talking to, but more than that, listen well, hear what they're saying. A lot of times people... Um, give symptoms of spiritual uh, need. It's like um, if you have a child who's coughing a little bit and when they give you a hug, they are warm, what are you going to assume? Right. So when you're in conversations and people are giving signs that there's, there's something that's eroded their faith, their confidence in God, their joy in obeying Christ, their delight in the body of Christ, their, their home life being less than good, Hear those things and don't just dismiss them. Just like a good mom pays attention to her child, if they hug their child and they're warm or hot to the touch, usually they'll grab a thermometer and just verify that it's not just them. You know, that maybe they're the one who's sick and they have a misdiagnosis. Teach them, which that is both negative and positive. Teach them what to do, what not to do. Teach them what to think, not to think. Motivate, cultivate trust in the Lord, both doctrinal and practical. I think sometimes we don't spend time on motivating. It's just like, okay, here's what God's word says. Okay, we're good. A lot of times what I'm struggling with isn't knowledge, it's desire. Or it's, it's maybe I think if I do that, outcomes will be painful. Right? Like, well, if I tell my daughter that, she'll, she'll dislike me and move out of my home. I don't want to tell her that. Well, you got to lead that person to want obedience, uh, to, to trust the Lord that's good. So I think there ought to be some strong time spent on motivation. Um, you know, sometimes we give sympathy rather than, like, conf confrontation. And so let's imagine that you're talking to someone and they're complaining about their church. Let's just stop for a second. If someone's complaining about their church, could it be that, that that complaint is true and relevant? What do you know about your church? It's filled with who sin, right? Like, it's not like we're just sinners by, 
you know, nature and God has redeemed us, and now this place is heaven 2.0, right? It, we're not. There are sinners. So when you hear someone complaining about the church that's sinful, how would you encourage them to respond to that? Okay. Can you think of anyone else who responds in a way that would be really helpful to sinful churches? What? Jesus? What did Jesus do for the sinful church? Jesus did, yes, like the seven churches in Revelation. I always think of a totally different passage, but yeah, he communicated. You need to fix it. What else did he do? He died for them because he loved them. In fact, we know that he loved them despite their sin because one of the purposes of of his love is to purify them from it. So rather than dismissing their concern like, hey, it's probably not a big deal, you might want to lean into it and say, wow, that sounds horrible. Like, man, that's not not very godly of that church. So what are you going to do about that? Well, we're thinking about looking for a different church. Wow, that's a serious, serious decision. Have you ever considered Jesus? Aren't you glad he didn't leave us? It wasn't because their sin wasn't serious. It was because he, 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 he realized the singular agent of rescue was himself. You consider that God might use you like he's using Christ in all the churches to sanctify and purify them. Have you considered that Jesus Christ offers forgiveness before walking away? Have you consider that he seeks to reconcile people and cleanse them from their sin? Have you considered Christ? But oftentimes in those situations, we come at that and, and we're navigating how to make the decision to leave a church well. Not challenging them on that decision at all. Or maybe we're like, hey, you know what, our church. <laughs> it's like, yeah, maybe you should leave your church because our church is good. Like, we just come at disciple making sometimes with a, um, maybe with a perspective that doesn't see that not only is motivation one of the goals of discipleship, but it's sometimes, I think, unseen need. That, that the disciples should pay attention to. And then call to action. Like if Christ has given us this example that we would follow in his steps, 1 Peter 2, then perhaps we should demand that people follow in his steps with a little more authority. I mean, did Christ love the church to give you an example to love the church? So when you see someone struggling with a cool, tepid love, I don't think you should tolerate it. Now, I do think with, we rebuke with patience and gentleness, but at the same time, sometimes people are expressing sinful things, and our response is, yeah, that's really understandable. Let's spend six weeks talking about that. <laughs> it, let's be patient, but at the same time, I think the application of God's word is a call to immediately obey always. I don't think there's ever a time where we call people to take their time getting out of sin. And so we, we, we encourage them, and I think if they don't get out of sin immediately, we're patient with their failure to obey, but we shouldn't be patient in our communication that that's a failure to obey. And so we call them to repent even of the slowness with which they're obeying the Lord. All right, so that was all review. Let's start with prayer, and then we'll jump into this morning's um, layout. Father, thank you so much for the example of Jesus Christ who patterns for us what it means to make disciples. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would help us to follow after Christ, that we would be close on his heels, that we would not give our flesh any room for failing to crucify it. Uh, Lord, help us to battle against sin like it is killing us. Lord, help us to put to death the deeds of the flesh by the power of the Spirit. We pray that we might do these things, not merely that Christ be glorified, but that he is glorified in others as they walk with us and are encouraged and strengthened by our following after Christ. Lord, we pray that the graces that you give us to disciple others and to walk after Christ would be manifold and strong in our life to help us be like our Savior. Lord, we pray for our sakes. We pray for the sakes of those that we disciple. Most of all, for the sake of Christ, that you would do these things in us, that there would be much reward in heaven and glory for Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, spending time with others. The practice of engagement. This is actually, 
in some ways, one of the, the concerns I have is we don't even know what we're doing when we meet with someone at a coffee shop to help them. Have you ever, and I confess this has happened to me, you meet with someone to talk about something spiritual, something significant, and you fritter your time away talking about really interesting things, but not divine things. You know, like the, I don't know if any of you know this, but the Packers lost Aaron Rodgers this last week, and the draft happened. I can imagine talking to Colin, who also happens to love God's team, and I would... <laughs> I would talk all about the last couple weeks of life as a Packer fan and walk away and very little eternal work is done. And instead, we've, we've entertained ourselves with something we find fascinating. I think God has given us these types of things in this world for our enjoyment, but not for our distraction from Christ. And I think sometimes as disciple makers, as well as those who are disciplees, we can often find those conversations more intriguing because they're more accessible, they're more fascinating, they're less work. And we walk away really doing nothing to help one another. So if that's you, here's, here's a recommendation. I'm going to give you four, uh, I don't want to say tools, but maybe four practices I think are, are part of the regular um, fiber of walking in community with one another and helping each other. Read scripture together. Study the Bible together. Read, interpret, apply, and pray about the scripture together. Pray. I mean, the content of your prayers being scripture is kind of the point. Um, I, I think the discipline of Bible reading is really difficult for many Christians. It's one of the reasons I'm convinced we should do public reading of scripture within the church, is I do think there is a large portion of many Christians in our, in our country who don't read their Bibles throughout the week. And when they do read them, they don't read them well. And, and when they read them in the context of just their own private lives, sometimes their reading is big, huge swaths of Scripture with very little comprehension. And sometimes it's narrow, little, like, fortune cookie, proverb-type things, like reading one little thing. As soon as they get some blessing, they're done. And so reading the Scripture together is a really important way to disciple someone. If you just think through... Um, the power of Scripture, and God says, my word will not return. It will accomplish the purpose to which I send it. You know, the word of God is living and powerful. It pierces to the thoughts and intents of the heart. If you want to disciple someone, the singular tool that you have some sense of management over is the word of God. I mean, we are reliant on the Holy Spirit, but he is not, he is not a tool in our hands. The Scriptures are. God has entrusted to us this instrument of change. Why would you ever disciple without it? But we do. So one of the reasons I think we should disciple for it is we want to aim for understanding to rightly divide the word of truth to align the text we have in the broader scope of the passage as well as the whole story of the Bible. And when we do that well, we actually empower the Spirit to sh shape and move that person to be like Christ. Uh, so avoid using things out of context, because one of my pet peeves with the biblical counseling movement is sometimes they steal a verse out of context, and when they set it in the context, it's either more powerful or not at all what they think it means. And if you just think through, well, in fact, this morning's sermon, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, which is actually the King James Version. I can do all things through him who strengthens me is most uh, other versions, is not a verse for athletes. Well, maybe it is if they have a very losing team and really battling for contentment, but it's not a verse about throwing the football farther. It's not a verse about conquering your opponent. It's a verse about contentment. But yet, you'll see people use that even within good churches for how to engage in some type of endeavor. Or something like, I know the plans I have for you, to do you. But who is that written to? In the context of what? Well, wasn't God getting ready to, to do very painful things to them? And when they're, doubt, they're tempted to doubt God's goodness, God is saying, hey, I have, I have plans beyond this to do good, despite the apparentness of the bad coming. 
not exactly a singular promise for a New Testament believer who's not about to get conquered by a foreign nation. It's just like the context doesn't connect in almost any way to us. And yet, that will be all over books and Bibles this May come graduation day. <laughs> like, it's, it's a horrible verse to use to encourage a graduate in the sense of actual content of Scripture, right? Now, maybe if you're counseling to someone, say, hey, let me take you to a parallel Scripture to what you're going through. Israel's about to face a really, really hard moment, and here's the point God is making. I'm going to do you good even though it doesn't feel good. Can you think of a New Testament parallel? Take them to Romans 8. It is consistent with the Christian experience that we doubt the one who sends sorrows because we don't think he's good. Both Israel struggled with that and the New Testament believers reminded that that struggle is a struggle to disbelieve in the goodness of God. You need to believe in it. And you could get there, but man, you got to get the context set. Okay, so that being the case, part of what you're doing then is patterning for this person how to self-encourage, how to self-feed on Scripture, how to confront themselves on the basis of Scripture. It's not that you're just doing it. It's that you're helping them do it again. Uh, maybe like someone in uh, physical therapy, and they're learning these stretches, and they're learning these exercises that help them recover their physical strength and vitality. They're not doing that merely for the half hour or hour they're there. They're doing that so that they can take those exercises home and continue the practice of getting healthy. And a good discipler does that as well. All right, um, aim for growth in maturity and discernment, rightly applying and understanding how to live in such a way that God is pleased. You know, Hebrews 5 indicates that they've actually lost maturity and they should be teachers, but they still require a teacher. You know, so some people, it's not their fault they require a discipler to disciple them. Others, it's because they're, they're spiritual couch potatoes. They've got no spiritual muscle. They're spiritually fat and lazy. And, and Hebrews goes after them. But that person still needs someone to come along and say, hey, let's get this fixed. It's not okay that you still need help, but let's make sure that tomorrow you don't need more help. Let's get you to the place where you can walk on your own. Let's help you build discernment to rightly understand good and evil in this world. Help them build trust in God's word. Uh, help them rightly respond to it, to see it, and act on it. Uh, 1 Corinthians 11.31, I think, is an encouraging verse. If we would judge ourselves truly, we would not be judged. You know, one of the goals of personal Bible study is that the judge would speak through it, correct and shape you, so that he doesn't have to himself. I mean, would you rather be working to be more like Christ in your personal Bible reading, you see something, you're like, oh, wow, I realize I really have a problem with the exaggeration. I really need to be careful to tell the truth, not make myself look good and kind of embellish the stories. Then have some fellow Christian be the mouthpiece of God in a public setting, have to confront you on your lying. Or have Christ himself do it when you see him. I would much rather personal Bible reading format of self-confrontation, right? And, and that's what Scripture is intended for. If we would judge ourselves... We would not be judged. Man, what a grace that God is helping us through the Spirit to strengthen our walk to be like Christ. So help the, the disciple to get there. Um, number two practical um, way we disciple others is purposeful conversations on topics about current life situations. This might sound like biblical counseling because that's essentially what biblical counseling is. Biblical counseling is a formal setting, usually over a crisis situation. But the church, and maybe I could say it, I think the counseling movement has um, poached what should be the natural fiber of the church and made it a specialized thing. Uh, so in some sense, you all should be biblical counselors and being biblically counseled. Um, that being the, the case, I just like Psalm 1, how happy, I, I put the word blessed there, or I put the word happy blessed, it's, I think the NIV says happy. He is a man who does not follow the advice of the wicked. Instead, Scripture says, he delights in the Lord's instruction. Counselors take the immature to green pastures of the Lord's instruction that they might be taught by the Lord. Um, conversations where the disciple talks about life will allow the teacher to discern their disciple's thinking, behavior, responses, and trials and victories. The counselor can probe for the presence of faith and confidence or doubt, understanding and discernment about a variety of areas. 
And in this case, I think that this, the counselor works almost like a tour guide. Uh, a few months ago, my wife and I went to the Reagan Library, and there are a couple things you, you, know, you want to see, and then there's a lot of stuff you can just spend your time on. I mean, they, they have journals and letters and stuff that you can just read because they have them displayed so you're able to read them. But if you only have a few moments there, you're going to want to hit the high points, right? So you ask a guide, and they point you to the places you want to go. In some ways, that's what a good counselor can do. It's like, oh, you're struggling with this thing? Let me take you to the place in Scripture that might be most relevant to you and help you to see it well and understand what's going on. And that's the type of thing that you would expect when there's complexity or maybe someone's struggling, maybe their Bible knowledge is weak. Just seek to understand why the person's struggling so that you can understand whether it's their thinking or their heart or their feet. Does that make sense? When I, I use those three things, kind of break down, I think, our normal responses of like thoughts, emotions, and will. You know, which, which, one is, which one is weak, or are all of them weak, or two of the three? Like, what's going on? So if you talk to a man, and he's struggling with loving his wife, and you say, do you know you're supposed to love your wife? And he's like, yeah, but have you met my wife? Like, I hear in that a subtle rebellion. Like, yeah, that was for normal wives, but my wife is extra special. Right? Like, like, what, that doesn't apply to me because my wife is so rough. So he can, he can excuse his sinfulness that way, in which case the issue is the issue's a little bit intellectual, but it's just really volitional. I'm a rebel and I'm giving myself cover, but I know what I'm supposed to do. Or perhaps, you know, he gives himself some emotional cover somehow. Establish spiritual openness whereby we may encourage one another, warn one another, and help others to see what they may not see. There are good habits that lead to God's grace. Cultivate conversations that encourage commitment to these disciplines of grace. Um, on a regular basis, I find that many of us struggle with the disciplines of walking in grace. Do you know what I mean by that? Okay. If someone is a mature Christian, what are things they do to pursue grace? They pray and read their Bible. Are those disciplines neglected by many Christians? And I would say read with understanding and comprehension and response. Right? Reading the Bible is not a token that we cash in and get godly by doing. It is, it is a means by which we commune with God. So, so we, we don't just do it. It's actually relational and responsive. And we, uh, James 1, don't be a hear only, lest you do what? Deceive yourself. So spiritual self-deception is a real danger of scripture reading. That is, we, we become people who read the Bible, and, and rather than letting the scripture kind of uh, shape and form our thinking and us responding in obedience, we, we let it shape our thinking in the sense that like, oh, that's good, and we don't change. The Bible says the result of that is spiritual deception. You think you're spiritually strong and you're not. That's terrifying. The solution is not then to not read your Bible so you're not spiritually deceived. Then you know how bad you are. The solution is to apply the scripture by doing it. Okay, so we talk about spiritual disciplines. Those are two. What other ones would we have? We got two right now. Bible reading and prayer. Fellowship. Okay. Connecting to other Christians in such a way that there's genuine spiritual benefit for the parties involved. What else would be a spiritual discipline that can be forsaken? Scripture memory. That's a, that's a common one because that takes an extra step of just work. I, I generally don't memorize things on accident. The closest what I would get to that is watching some cartoon 300 times because my kids love it. What would be another discipline? Okay, giving, confession, and repentance, worship. I, I would say church attendance. And by that, I don't mean like checkmark attendance, but gathering with the body of Christ. So, like, this is a common but just absolutely confounding thought to me. Someone comes to me and is like, you know, I really need to grow my spiritual life. I'm really struggling, and I'm, I know I need to grow. I've been a Christian for 10 years, and I don't know anything. And they only come Sunday morning 
to gather with God's people. They don't come Sunday night. And tonight, you're going to hear a gifted servant of the Lord who has spent hours and hours and hours studying Romans, reading the best commentaries on it, working to package together the Word of God to be tasteful and insightful and applicational. And you want to grow and you're not going to be there. Like, like, explain to me that rationale. It's like, I'm a foodie. Oh, yeah? Did you hear there's a free food tasting? There's the best chefs in the world, and they're offering the free food at the fair. Yeah. Well, then you're not a foodie. Like, you're not serious about food if you're not going to be there. There's free food from the best chefs in the world. You'd be there. So, like, one of the, one, one of the, one of the um, I would encourage you all to do this. The applications of that thought is, I don't think people should be enrooted very long as your disciple if you don't demand from them attendance at our services. Like, they're missing out on prayer, Bible reading, instruction in God's word, fellowship, and a demand to gather from God together for those purposes. Can you truly believe the sincerity of their request to grow if they understand that and don't come? Like, I, I think not, but I think we are self-deceived on that, and so I would give patience in that correction and, and try to challenge them and say, hey, if you're serious about this issue, how, how is it that you're never at small group? You're never in equipping hour. And then you seem to find every opportunity possible to work in the nursery. And as much as we appreciate that, you're missing out. Are you really serious about this? I, th I think those challenges need to be given. So that's like when I talk about purposeful conversations, helping people understand that oftentimes spiritual lethargy and um, lack of spiritual stature is a byproduct of a lack of pursuing God's grace through disciplines. Um, established spiritual openness is, I mean, part of that is, I don't know, for those of you that have been discipling for any amount of time, I'm sure you experience frequently the joy and the encouragement and the challenge of growing with someone. Does that make sense? Very rarely am I engaged in a discipleship relationship that I do not feel the conviction of the Spirit or the challenge to grow, or the need to pursue Christ because of that discipleship relationship. The idea that the discipler just stands and says, you need to get better, and doesn't themselves feel the Holy Spirit say, yeah, you too. It is nonsense. So it's really good to be engaged in discipleship relationships for the discipler. Um, Hebrews 5.12, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you. That's a really helpful verse for discipling to me. Like, you need someone to teach you. Now, what are they teaching? The basic, basic principles of, of the oracles of God or God's word. You need milk, not solid food. Just a free for, you know, it's like one of those samples that Sam's is free. It's really not part of the reason you're here this morning. But if you, if you elevate those things that are meat into basic discipleship conversations, you're dumb. So I don't want someone who's failing to read their Bible and failing to come to church to be an expert on Calvin and Calvinism. Like, spiritually, it's just gag. Can you imagine someone more gracious, or I'm sorry, less gracious and less careful in their joy in Calvinism than a very immature Christian who loves Calvinism and doesn't love Christ richly? That's so distasteful. And sometimes I fear that, that in churches where doctrine is valued, sometimes those markers of unique, and I would hope, biblical thinking, where in a culture there's a lot of non-biblical thinking, sometimes we preach for those markers, teach for those markers, and disciple for those markers, while missing out on the basics of just godliness. So, okay, back to our regular schedule programming. Titus 1.9 an overseer must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. 
I think it's a really insightful verse about discipling. If I want to disciple people, what do I need to do? Looks like a couple things. Hold firmly to the trustworthy word so that I can give instruction. It's hard to give something that you don't already possess firmly, at least biblically in terms of doctrine, and to rebuke those who contradict it. So there's two elements. I'm not in calling them to embrace something. I'm calling them to reject the falsehoods that are so common to, to cultural instruction if they're not aware. So Proverbs 15, 22, plans fail where there's no counsel. Whether this is broad wisdom or particular wisdom, you're dumb if you don't get counselors around you and you're making any weighty decision. I mean, if you're deciding whether or not to buy spearmint or peppermint gum, I don't think you need counsel. If you're trying to decide whether or not to make life-changing decisions and you're not getting counsel from outsiders, uh, you are living the Proverbs fool's life. Read instructional books together with discernment. Okay, so I say co-read and discuss a book that leads you to biblical understanding, application, or commitments. Good books and good commentaries can give insight and understanding God's word, create opportunities for discussion, and aid in scripture study. They help you develop discernment, application, and they foster new thoughts. We gather good or godly counselors before us with books. Does that make sense? Like sometimes, I don't know the first thing to tell you about what you're going through. But I know someone who did. You know, like a good example, I, I know that Caleb recommended um, a book on spiritual discouragement and depression by Martin Lloyd-Jones. Um, I am not very self-aware about my feelings. So I can give some biblical insight on these things because I think, I think I understand what Scripture says about some of these things. But if you want someone who's godly and has been there and walked through those things, maybe you and I would read Lloyd-Jones together because I also need to hear from him some of the God-given wisdom and the application of Scripture to this issue. And so we both sit with another counselor, Lloyd-Jones, who is with the Lord and no longer able to be in person. And we get counsel from a godly man who's done this before us. That's what a good book does. Um, I think the measure of a good book is its ability to take us to Scripture, help us understand it and rightly discern it and apply it. Um, books, books are helpful. Sometimes they just um, co-locate a lot of Scripture on an issue. And that's helpful. But like if I said, hey, what are all the scriptures that are relevant to the issue of alcohol? Most of us are like, uh, I don't know. So a good book will a lot of times work through the issues and the concerns on that, put all the scriptures together, and maybe even help you understand them better in their context, where for you to sit there and work through all the scriptures on alcohol might lead you to having some blind spots about the right discernment of it. So good books help, and that's why they co-locate. They bring together scriptures that uh, save you time, make your study on the particular issues of concern uh, more quick and efficient. In some sense, reading books is like sitting down with counselors. You gain valuable wisdom and application and insight into scripture. You gain the advantage of someone else's careful and deliberate communication on a particular topic of interest. Another advantage of good books is they can gather, organize, and evaluate and present various scriptures on a particular topic. Okay, so then finally, and maybe even most importantly, live as an example. Following Christ publicly and being willing to call attention to it is my subtext there. Live faithfully for the Lord and be deliberate such that others are able to imitate your life. Obviously, you don't do this for your own glory. <laughs> it's biblically censured. Don't do that. Okay, but on the other hand, we are also called, I mean, think, think both Timothy and Titus. Paul says to these young leaders, be an example. Now, I don't think his point is, is live in such a way that if people actually knew what you did in secret, they would be able to follow you. I think the point is, is your life is relatively public. Make it a tool for God to use for others to follow. And the Apostle Paul himself does this, right? Join in imitating me. Or like 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, follow me as I follow Christ. Paul shamelessly, and by that I mean he doesn't, he's not embarrassed to call attention to his example. 2 Thessalonians 3, I, I did this so that you might have an example to follow. Like He's purposeful not only to, to call attention to it, 
he lives in such a way for the purpose of calling, calling attention to it. Um, I, I remember having this conversation with a pastor who I could tell was having to discipline a child and was, was embarrassed about it. And, and I just encouraged the, the person. I'm like, listen, our people see a lot of bad parenting. And if they never see public correction of children by parents, they might think that that's not actually an acceptable behavior. Or it's shameful. Like, you should do your parenting publicly without bringing shame to your children. So, you know, like, walk carefully that path because you are dealing with children too. But if we never see pastors parent, aren't we robbing our church of a good example? And, and I think as disciplers, I still remember this, and I've, I've, my wife and I embraced it. I remember sitting with um, a seminary professor, and we were just talking through giving generously to the Lord. And, and I think there's grace, so kind of a sidebar here, but it, I think it's helpful in the idea of example because it stuck with me. Um, and it's been our pattern. We are following his example to this day. Is He, he gave his, his way of giving and he basically said there are a lot of people who think their, their life is filled with needs. Like, I need internet. Or my wife needs a break every week, so we have, rest, we have like, Friday's our restaurant day, so she can get a break from cooking. And you have these things that you call needs. Now, historically, can we all agree that having your wife have a break on Friday, historically, is nonsense. I mean, like, Restaurants on every street corner is a new thing, historically is what I'm saying. Like, there was no McDonald's in the 1800s for a pioneer woman who every day was having to grind her own grain, bake her own bread, like, grow her own produce, and do all of that. It's not like, honey, you've had a hard week. I, I mean, I realize those tomatoes didn't come in and you're discouraged, but we're just going to go out tonight and have a break. And yet, what we're doing in our culture is we have a lot of these, they're their sweet gifts that God has given us in this culture. And we call them needs, and so it's like, well, I can't give 10% because of all the, we just have no money left at the end of the month to give. As we were having this conversation, he said, you know, my practice, Mark, is that there are a lot of things in my life that are extra. After paying for, you know, the basics like housing, bills that are required to be paid, and paying for the necessities of life like groceries, if I'm not giving at least 10%, everything else starts getting cut. We're not going to have a cable bill. We're not going to have internet. We're not going to have cell phones. We're not going to have restaurants if I don't give at least 10%. You know what happens when people make that decision? They give 10%. Which usually means when they say we don't have enough money is we don't have enough money for us to live the way we want to live and pay for our needs, and then for God to get 10% at the end. And by just reversing that priority is like, let me put God ahead of anything extra in my life that's not needed for survival. That was just how he did it. And we were, we were not talking about Mark and Charity at the time, but it wasn't too long before Charity and I were having the conversation, like, that's a good way to live. <laughs> we, were, we, we had a budget. We had $5 spare every month. So it's like, that is true. That was our date night. And we were going through seminary and, and trying to survive. And, you know, a lot was, I mean, at that point we had multiple jobs just trying to make. Uh, but it was helpful for me. So here's a man who showed me how he did it in giving. And that was so encouraging to me. It's like, this is how to do it was helpful. Because I don't think God says you must give 10% or you're living wickedly. I also think 10% is a grace for someone who's wealthy. I mean, if this last year I made $1.5 million, I really, I, I mean, I could give away probably 1.3, I mean, taxes would take a ton, but you know what I mean? Like, yeah, I could live, let's say I could live on 100,000. Should I, should I be obligated to give the church 1.4? Like, is that how this works? I think 10% is a grace to the wealthy. And so I, I do think it's a good marker for Christians in this age. So that example for me stuck. I think sometimes in counseling, we're ashamed to give ourselves as examples. Now, if, if you're living in such a way to say, look what I do, I'm so amazing. 
you should be ashamed of that type of attitude. On the other hand, if you're saying, hey, can I tell you what the Lord has taught me? I can often excuse the extra as necessary and crowd out my giving, and I don't give what I should. I don't give sacrificially. And so here's what my wife and I have decided to do, and it's been a huge blessing for us. It might be a good way for you to start thinking. That's a whole different way of discipling than, hey, everybody, look at me. I've got it figured out. I'm glorious. But again, we should live in such a way that we could call attention to areas of discernment and godliness and help people see how to live. The other reason we might be embarrassed to do that is because we should be embarrassed because we're not living well. It's like, you know, I, I really don't want you to ask how much I give to the Lord. That's, that's not great discipleship either. So live as an example. Um, get to the place where you can say, follow me as I follow Christ. That, for me, is a really helpful phrase to give. Because what, what is the, the apostle saying? Right, follow, follow Christ, but because you can't see him well, maybe, look, look at me and follow me as I follow Christ. If you think about it, maybe visually, let's imagine that Christ is so far out ahead of us, we can't see him. But in front of us is a godly servant who can see Christ, who can see how to follow after Christ in this complex way. Rather than trying to find Christ and not being able to see how he would do it in this modern era, maybe we can follow a godly family, a godly mom or dad, or a godly person who's in front of us doing it well because they're following Christ. I can see how it's done and follow them. I can see the person in front of me. I can't see Christ beyond. I think that's, for me, like you could, see, you could visualize that literally. Right? If you had 100 people in a line and Christ is way on the front, you can't see him. You can see the two or three people in front of you. You can see the two or three people in front of them and so on forth until Christ is actually the one leading all of us. I think that's kind of the point of being a good example. I think this is particularly necessary in areas of discernment or um, challenging applications. So when, when, when there are difficulties in terms of how should we live, finding godly people who've, who've figured and wrestled and thought and prayed about those issues, that's really precious as a gift to the church. Um, all right, First Timothy 4.12, let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Notice he calls Timothy to do it for the purpose of exampling. Set an example. <laughs> It's not merely that he's supposed to have such a life that he could be an example. It's actually the purpose for which he's doing this. Set an example. So if you're called to disciple others, <clears throat> who's called to disciple others? All of God's people are called to disciple others. One of the ways you do it is by being diligent that if anyone's following you, they follow Christ. Right? Like, sometimes you're discipling people and you don't know it. So your faithfulness to the Lord is a testament. The fact that you're here present on a Sunday morning for equipping hour is actually a testimony to others. Like, this is, this is how those people did it. You know, if we want to have a faithful, strong home like them, maybe we should be careful to do some of the things that we see them doing. So it's a good, it's a good thing to be careful of our example. All right, any questions, comments, snide remarks? Yes, Andy. Well, yeah, I mean, I think there is a difference. If we're, if we're using discipling as helping people to follow Christ, then when I'm meeting with an unbeliever, I'm actually trying to help them trust Christ to salvation. And so basically, I am, I am formatting those discussions around the gospel, which isn't hard to get to with most problems in life. So like, if a guy comes to me and he's having a problem in his marriage, guess what we're going to talk about? Gospel stuff, right? Like the love of Christ for sinners, the forgiveness offered to those same sinners, the cost to Christ to forgive those sinners, and that whole time, what am I telling him? Look to Christ. And then I say something like, this seems absolutely impossible for us to do in our marriages, isn't it? I mean, you could have a really good wife, and this is brutally hard. But you know what makes this possible is when we trust in Christ, he gives us grace to follow his example. You know, so, Something like that, I think, is a, um, 
I'll do premarital with unbelievers with like two sessions and all I give them is gospel. And it's kind of like, if they don't have the gospel, I can't teach them to follow Christ if they don't actually have Christ. And so I think it's a, it's a little bit of a piece of folly to think that that's a long-term relationship. So if it's a long-term relationship that's not a discipleship relationship and you're trying to think, okay, how do I help them follow Christ? I would, I would think that one of the ways you do that is by personally being very um, careful in your example and very outspoken in your adoration of Christ in such a way that you're not an obnoxious person. I think we've all met that person who's like, they're cringy and a little bit, they're just unpleasant to be around because of the way they do this. Hold on, I got Andy first and then I'll come to your list. Andy? Well, so like if I'm going to read a book, let's say on an eating disorder, I would assume if it's a well-written book, they're going to locate a ton of verses in the Bible and put them in 80 pages on dieting. So when I say co-locate, I mean I don't have to go searching high and low for different scripture passages on eating. They put them in one 80-page booklet. So when I say co-locate, I mean they locate them together. Yeah, a good book would, right? Like, I mean, any book on good uh, discipline issues or counseling issues or whatever like that is going to have scripture filling its content, and if it doesn't, burn it. <laughs> Let's... That's a super helpful um, thought you raised. We can consume a lot of time in discipling others, um, especially in a culture of therapy, which is the U.S. Everyone thinks they need counseling for everything. And so the church is not meant to be a therapeutic resource for the world to feel good about themselves. And I don't mean the world as in like unbelievers. I mean just all of us. So like, I think that's where like knowing when you're wasting your time Asking for them to participate with their own disciplines. It, like, if they're unwilling to be disciplined in any area and they're going to consume two hours a week, like, this is going to be profitless. Like, if, if they can't pursue Christ and find food in the Word of God for their soul, how much help can you give them? They're living on the discipleship like life support, as soon as you stop discipling them, they have no disciplines to sustain spiritual growth. They're going nowhere. I think you as a discipler, if you're discipling people, should begin demanding that for this to continue, they need to begin growing in the disciplines. Because if they need you, that might feel good for a while as a discipler, but, but you do not want codependency on you. You want them dependent on Christ. And so really making sure that your, your objective is to push them towards the established graces of Christ. Things like scripture reading and prayer, fellowship with the saints, corporate prayer, attendance at more services than just the Sunday morning and more ministries than just Sunday morning. I mean, I've, I've gotten to the place now with most disciples that are, and I just disciple men generally speaking, um, that if they're not going to come to um, Friday morning's Bible study or Sunday night, I'm not going to spend much time with them. I mean, again, they're going to be discipled really well tonight if they come. Really well. They're going to pray together with the church family. They're going to hear from the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans as Caleb opens up Scripture. There you go. Psalm 119.59.
Yeah, and I think, I mean, this is a racist joke. So take it with a, I remember this from junior high, but I think it happens spiritually too. So <clears throat> I, I won't say the nationality, so I'll take the, the race out of it. But do you know how the Germans invaded a certain country? Yeah, you don't know that one. They marched in backwards and said they were, they, they said they were retreating. I think we have Christians. So, so how did the Germans invade a, a certain unnamed country? They marched in backwards and said to that country, we're just retreating. I think there are Christians. I don't know if you got that. But I think there are Christians who say the right thing while they're walking away from Christ. And we take them at face value and we don't challenge them. Like, does that make sense? They're like, hey, I'm, I, I want to be serious about Christ. I want to follow Christ. And everything in their life points to them losing confidence and trust and obedience to Christ. And I think the disciple calls them on that dishonesty or helps them to see it because it, be, it might not be expressive. It might be implicit. That is, they, they don't know they're walking so contrary to Christ. So sometimes people say the right things while they're doing all the wrong things. The disciple helps them see it and challenges them because otherwise you're, you're wasting their time too. All right, any other questions? Okay. <laughs> I think Walter just got the joke. <laughs> you're laughing at what? Well, I'm trying not to, like, I'm trying not to make it a racist joke, but it, like, it just lands poorly. All right. Let's pray and be done. Father in heaven, thank you so much for kindness to us. Lord, thank you for those people within our lives that show us how to live godly lives, who speak truth with sweet words that are persuasive and filled with grace and kindness. Uh, Lord, help us to always be people who are speaking the truth with uh, not merely grace, but with insight and a biblical thoughtfulness that is sound in doctrine. Lord, I pray that you would strengthen your church as each person is supplying what the body needs so that we are built up to full maturity of the glorious person of Christ. Uh, Lord, we ask that we might glorify your son by, as a body, looking more like him as you shape each individual to be more like your son as well. Lord, thank you for your word. Help us to be disciple makers. Strengthen us for this task. Give us joy in the doing of it. In Jesus' name, amen.